start by just kind of talking off the top of my head what things that I might say. I mean, there are lots of different uh, forms that this better school might take. So I'll just I'll talk about some of the things that I've seen and so on. Um, one thing is the school I'm involved with, a new school, independent school in Wales, actually, in South Wales, is going to start, uh, I think, next September, uh, with no building. They will have children, but it will have no building. And the curriculum for the first year, it will have like, something like years five, six, seven, and eight. So it'll start with about 100 kids. The curriculum for the first year is build the first building for the children. So one of the principles is, well, the principles behind my thinking is I have a number of sort of thought bubbles that I imagine coming out of people's heads. But one of my principles is one of my commandments is, thou shalt not do for young people what they might be ready to do for themselves. Right? Not what they can already do, but what with a, mildly optimistically you think they might be able to do, given the opportunity. In the way that Sugata Mitra, how many of you were at the session five years or so ago when Sugata Mitra was here? Right? Well, I hope he had a profound effect on you. Because his research, if you don't know, he's got a new book coming out called School in the Cloud. The buildings really don't matter. There's a, be an awful lot of reliance on uh, smartphones. There will be no problem about negotiating the use of smartphones. You wouldn't negotiate that with the students. What are proper uses? What are acceptable uses? Instead of this sort of uneasy attempt to stop kids doing things that you don't want, to, want them to do, we would have discussions. We would set up student discussions. The whole school would debate about what the rules should be about the use of smartphones. And an awful lot of learning would involve those. Sugata Mitra says, you may remember him saying this, it wasn't in this room, but it was in this city, whenever it was, five or six years ago. Groups of four children with one internet-enabled device can teach themselves almost anything. That is, he has, he's good at radical ideas, Sugata, so he's close to my school for the future. So it doesn't matter about the buildings, because you can hook up anywhere. He runs schools all over the place, in rural Argentina, in rural India, what have you, providing you can get an internet connection, and you can hook into uh, search engines, and preferably if you can hook into what he calls Skype grannies, that is to say, people who are not teachers, who do not have specialist knowledge, but are happy to engage with your, quest, your the students' questions in a, an interested and encouraging way. That's all they need to do. If they do more than that, they spoil the magic. Because then they start to sound like teachers, and then the children start to behave like students.
In other words, they regress to a state of dependency. So you can build your own buildings, you can have glass walls, you can have, you can have your school built out of movable things. So the first week or so of every school year, the children are deciding where the walls will be. When you walk into a classroom or a workspace, it might look like all kinds of things, like glass walls or wipe clean walls that they can write all over. Uh, a lot of what they do will be driven by their own questions. And the nature of the questions, the nature of that project-based learning would change, this is my thinking, would change as they go up through the school. As they, as they grow in age and grow in competence. So they would start with, with questions that are more small scale and more personally interesting. Then they might move to things that are community focused, things that matter to somebody or some organization in their community, which they're involved in. I was talking to some people over dinner last night about the, the five or six characteristics of learning which means you have no problem with motivation. If you get these characteristics right, particularly with teenagers and adolescents, there are three R's and three C's, and I, I've forgotten one of the C's for the moment, but the three R's is it's got to be real. In other words, it's got to matter to somebody. Children have to be, what they do has to be respected by people. They have to have some responsibility for what they're doing. It has to be challenging otherwise it's not interesting and they have to be able to collaborate what what's the what's the third C what do you think creativity and imagine quite possibly yeah it involves creativity or imagination so it would be a lot of that there might still be exam system but they would just they'd smash the exams because they would be such powerful and independent learners that they could do their A-levels in a term or in a semester, do things like that. Teachers would talk differently, children would talk differently, children would talk a lot more than the teachers talk. Everybody in the school would be a teacher. All the children would be teachers. The children would be the teachers' teachers, teaching them about technology. There would be lesson observers. The children would be looking at what's going on at the learning and making recommendations. This happens in hundreds of schools that I'm involved with now. The teachers are not too proud to be coached by the children about how to become better teachers. A lot of these things would be radical right now, wouldn't they? A lot of teachers would go, ooh, don't know if I could do that. Instant anxiety. Sharing control, losing control with the children. There will be a real partnership between these, these things. Okay. So, now let's have a look. Let's see. What have, you, what have you come up with? Reduced classrooms. Reduced, does that mean the number of children in the classroom? There's research. John Hattie says class size doesn't matter. If you reduce class size from 30 to 20, you don't get any ben benefit. It's a very expensive way of wasting money. It if, it's a waste of time and money if, you carry on teaching the 15 or the 20 in the same way you taught the 30. Right? It makes a difference if you take that opportunity to do something differently. 
to create a different vibe, to create a different atmosphere in the classroom. Frequent staff meetings to discuss pedagogy, children's well-being, learning progress, etc. Yeah, absolutely. And why not whole school meetings? How much would we involve the students in having those discussions as well? The school in South Wales that's being put together by, I don't know, those of you who are from England might have come across a rather controversial singer. She was a young star singer, classical singer, called Charlotte Church. And now she's a social activist and she's, she's putting together this new school because she couldn't find a school she liked for her children. So she's inventing a new school, which is the school that the children are going to build for themselves to start with. So reduced classrooms, yes, maybe, bit of a question mark about that. Wouldn't have groups by ages, yeah, I mean that's just such a silly thing. There's absolutely no reason why we should batch children by ages, it's just a sort of conveyor belt idea that all seven-year-olds are in some important sense alike. They're not. You know in any class of seven-year-olds you have some who are 11 and some who are five. Mentally, emotionally, educationally, don't you? So, so kids who would, would involve. Some of these are in Spanish, I'm afraid, so yeah, someone might have to translate these for me. No walls. I don't mind about the walls particularly. Cooperative projects, certainly. Time for students to make mistakes and find their own way out of them. Yeah, absolutely. Minimal rescuing by teachers. One small, this is, I'm skipping ahead now, but one small step that a lot of my schools use is they, they will have project, this is ordinary schools in the state system, they will have a project week where all the year fours are set a project. Like they have to create a cafe by Friday and all the parents are going to come in on Friday and they have to have drinks and cakes and sandwiches to sell and they have to budget it and they have to do the whole thing and they have a week to do it. And at the beginning of the week, they're given, they, they may, some money might be provided for them, but they're each given a pound at the beginning of the week. And if they want any help from an adult during the course of that week, they have to pay for it. So if two kids have fallen out and they're having an argument and they come to the teacher and say, oh, Miss, she was mean to me, no I wasn't, and she started it. The teacher says, would you like me to sort, that, sort this out for you? Yes, please, Miss, it'll cost you 50 pence. <laughs> You'll be surprised how quickly they sort things out for themselves. <laughs> the speed with which they become independent and self-reliant is amazing. You can even do it with fake money. It, it works with monopoly money just as well as with, with real money. Very big playground, surrounded by nature. Yeah, lots of nature is good. Ideal for adventures. Bring the adventurousness back. And bring the intellectual adventurousness back. David Perkins, who is the, the guru, my guru, in this area. Has he been to Argentina? Has he? Yeah? He worked a lot in Venezuela, I know, but I don't know if he's been to Argentina. Um, He's wrote a nice little paper about what he called the difference between tame topics and wild topics. Tame topics is what most of the conventional curriculum has. Stuff that's been worked over to death. So there's nothing left to be discovered. There's just stuff to be learnt. Right? There's no life in them. There's no jungle left. It's like the Amazonian jungle being burnt down by that idiot in Brazil and his friends. 
Right? The jungle's all gone, it's been raised, and in its place there's domesticated farming. We have the periodic table, and we have the certified received history of Argentina, and we have this, that, and the other. Bring some wildness back into what we're doing. Make it difficult. Kids are not frightened of difficulty. They're just bored by the kinds of difficulty that the, that the conventional curriculum tries to involve them in. Groups and stations according to level and interest, great. Classroom with more spaces, better lab facilities, that will be good. Lots of schools, I mean, if you have a bit of startup money, 3D printers are a fantastic thing to have in schools. There was a school in Singapore that I was in a little while ago where I watched the year six, year fives had commissioned the year eights or year nines to make them a variety of gadgets. And so the year fives were the customers. They created the brief, and then the year nines built prototypes and went back to the year fives and said, no, that's not what we meant. Go and have another go, refine it, make it better. Actually, that's real. That's, make, that's real stuff, getting involved in real stuff. Independent students engaged in their own tasks. Students rather than learners will be truly engaged. Classrooms have different designs. No walls or tables. Maybe no, maybe, there may be some walls, there may be some tables. There's probably lots of better furniture, comfortable furniture, noisy and energetic classrooms. We're there, it's not difficult, is it? I mean, we know what would be, I don't think this is, it's not rocket science. As you put flesh on these things and people's interesting ideas become more challenging, like the build a school school, that's a great idea, isn't it? Just think how much they would learn about aesthetics, about history, about materials, about mathematics, about geometry, about working together, about negotiation, about compromise. If their job in the course of the year was to produce the first two rooms of the school. How are we doing for time? Yeah? Great. So. Are we allowed to do questions, sort of direct interaction? Has anybody got anything that they want to kind of throw in? Any, any dissident voices? Anybody who wants the school of the future to be much more like, much more Victorian? More beating? Bring back the cane? There's not much call for that. In some, in some places there are. Anything you want to throw in? Or any good idea that you've seen or that you've thought of that you've always wanted? I've always had this idea about getting the kids to build the facilities. They have to work with architects, of course. They don't just you know, do anything on their own. Yeah, please. Yeah. Say again. How do we assess them? Yeah? How do How we assess, we assess them? them? Yes. Because well, we have first to question is, do we need to assess them? What do we need to assess them for? Right? Yes, but in, in the, country, I, we I, have a the lot idea, of international exams that yeah. is the problem for us. I think one, one of the big problems is the terminal exams, exams at the end of school. I think we should, but this is my view, I think we should abolish those. And I think it should be the responsibility of colleges, universities, and employers to set tests on entry into their thing. It's like, it's very easy to find out whether someone 
can read and write, whether someone can, can critique a research paper. You can find that out in half an hour. You don't need a certificate, don't you? Right? So put the onus on, the, on the, the, the point of entry into something rather than the point of exit from something. So let's do that. So one of Sugata's other suggestions is that all examinations, you pass a global law that all examinations that should be, children should be allowed to have their phones with them in all examinations. Just imagine how that would change everything. Right? Huge amount of nonsense would go out of the window. So I agree completely with this idea, and I think we all do. My question is, until then, yeah, yeah. we still have curriculums and we still have exams. Yeah, that's, it, that's question three. No, no, okay. Right? So what do we do? We're getting there. We're, get, we're going to be patient. Okay, that's, that's, that's the third. Look, the second question is the mess we have at the moment. How do we think about how big is the gap? How far do we have to go? And the third question is what are those little steps that we make? Okay, so great. We're there. Okay, so is this the second one? Is it the, the bold bit at the top or the bit underneath? I see we are still looking at our mates. Oh, what's, is this, well, I, this is interesting, this second thing down, where did that come from? How can we experience what we're talking in order to materialize it in reality? We're still sitting looking at our mates next. Okay, let's reorganize this room into one enormous circle. Be much more democratic, wouldn't it? No, forget it. <laughs> it's like some, there are some occasions on which you just have to go with it, I think. Uh, identify what would need to be done in terms of learning resources, training, to get to what was expressed in the previous point. Okay, that's a good question. So it is like, let's look at where we are now and start to think about what we would need for the journey to get from there to where we might want to go. Okay, so that's your next job, three minutes. You can do it individually or do it with your neighbor, whatever you want. So what will we need? I haven't thought about this question before. What do we need to get going? Okay, great. Can, we, can you put the comments up on the, on the, on the screen like, like we had them before? You did it for, for the first question. Okay, great. Okay, so what would need to be done? I mean, this, is, this, is, this seems like this is a more structural question. So we were, we were just talking about uh, uh, the, immediately you run up against the, the problem of the legal constraints, the s systemic constraints, the nature of the testing. Uh, uh, which is fairly rigorous, fairly, fairly hard line, I gather, in Argentina. It's just like, it's, I don't know, for, to me it seems like a curious mismatch between the fact that kids have these high-stake tests every year and then at the end of their schooling it sort of doesn't matter what they got because they can go to university anyway. So what was all that about? Am I, am I missing something here? Or is this... It's just kind of, you know. So, we have to be, we have to be sort of, you make, have to make a strategic decision 
about whether you're sort of going to go for evolution and re or revolution. Revolution would be nice, but that's going to be difficult because that requires, we'll have to wait for that to happen because it requires to, to get to a tipping point in the public mind if that's going to happen because an awful lot of parents are not ready to understand why you're not helping their child so much why their workbooks are a bit messier than they used to be. It's like parents have antiquated expectations. And politicians are, politicians are scared to do anything that might upset the electorate. Right? So politicians are always going to be too little to do too little too late. They're always going to be, whatever their political color, they're going to be conservative in their approach. So that's a problem. So my strategy, really, is my sort of the evolutionary, I go down the evolutionary route, and I think we have to keep stressing, as I did this morning in my talk, that, when, that the results, the conventional results, are going to benefit from a different style of pedagogy and from a different style of school organization. So we have to sell what we want to happen in school on the basis that it won't mess up the results. Now, people would argue about that. Some people who are more impatient. It's like the difference in the green world in Germany between the, what are called the railos and the fundies. You know, are you prepared to compromise? Are you prepared to be evolutionary in your thinking about how we make progress? Or do you say, well, we can't really do anything until the revolution comes? Um, and I don't think the revolution is going to come anytime soon. And I'm 72, so I haven't got much longer left to live. So I would rather make the kind of small difference that I can now rather than be complaining about what's going on. And it's also, I think, better for your mental health to be focusing on the little subversive things you can do within classrooms and schools as they exist at the moment, rather than focusing on, yes, but, you know, we would love to, but the testing regime, but parental expectations, but this and the, and the other. I'm always heartened by a little, a little way of thinking that a man called Edward de Bono, I think, first came up with. Have you heard, does that name mean anything to you? Have you heard of Edward de Bono? He invented something called lateral thinking, or he sort of branded creativity as lateral thinking. But he says this, it's like we, we have a choice about whether we're going to be what he calls rock thinkers or water thinkers. Now you might be, imagine water being surrounded by a whole lot of rocks. Right? If water was stupid, water would sit there in a puddle complaining about all the rocks that there were around it and saying, I wish these rocks weren't there. But rock, water isn't stupid. Water is incredibly smart because water doesn't really care about rocks. The only thing that water is extremely passionate about is gaps. If there's a tiny little gap, water will find it and on it will go it will continue to flow. So there are an awful lot of rocks that surround us which we would rather weren't there. 
the choice, we, and we can't do anything about much about that, it's a slow process of doing something about those rocks. But what we can choose is whether we give our attention to the rocks and allow ourselves to, to feel trapped and frustrated and blocked by that process, or whether we go looking for the gaps. And that's, that's my strategy, to go looking for the little things that we can do right now in classrooms which are not exactly subversive because kids who are more confident and independent and active learners will, if they understand the nature of the game, if we take them into our confidence, if we treat them as grown-ups, and you can do that with anybody from, from about six years of age upwards or possibly even younger, then they will understand that whilst we in our schools are building their independence and their confidence and doing more project work whenever we can and so on, nevertheless at some point they have to jump through these hoops. And if we can build their confidence, they'll smash the hoops more easily and more smoothly. There will be a minor irritation in their education rather than a big thing that they have to worry about. It's a bit like, I was talking last night, apparently, you have you, you've seen those things on YouTube of karate experts chopping through planks of wood, right? Apparently, part of the trick to do that, I mean, it's years and years of practice and hardening your hand and your bones and your muscles, but the trick is that you don't aim at the top of the top plank you aim at the bottom of the bottom plank. In other words, you, you can chop through the wood if you aim below the wood, if the wood is just in your way rather than the thing that you're focusing on. Do you get the analogy, you get the metaphor? So it's better for us if we focus on the thing that we can, like that we really want to get to, to build that independence and confident and collaborative spirit in young people and, not, and treat the examinations and the tests as a kind of irritant on the way or an interesting you know, or a little side challenge that they have to do from time to time. I think if we do that, did, that, did that, I don't think the results would go down because if kids are more enthused and more enlivened, they will make better progress. It's like, give them a bigger engine and they'll go further and faster. Give them a, wa a wider tube for learning and they'll suck up whatever they need to suck up more efficiently and more reliably. It's like school is hard work because we make it hard work for a lot of kids and we treat them as if they're not participants in the process, that they're just recipients of the process. So change those things and we might begin to change the attitude in schools. Out of time? How, how are we doing? Okay. Oh, here we go. Right. So we've got to da 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 da. Where shall we start? So where shall we start is the third thing. Do we need to? We, do we need to move on to the third question? If you want to pick your for a few minutes. Okay. 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 So train teachers differently. I think that's really crucial. I'm one of my frustrations in in my country in England is the reluctance of the teacher training institutions to think deeply and creatively about what education should be, particularly secondary teacher training. I don't know if it's the same in Argentina, 
but it's like they're very conservative. They're very attached to their knowledge base and disinclined to think more broadly and deeply. So that's a frustration. So most of my work, the place where, places where I tend to be welcomed with my ideas are in schools amongst serving teachers rather than amongst teachers who are first entering the profession. So I think it's absolutely right that we should be training teachers differently, but at, at the moment, my experience is, other people might have different experience, that it, it's easier, it's more effective to work in schools or with groups to, to do things like this conference. Um, what should be done until our government imposes a curriculum? Well, I think I've talked a little bit about that. More time for planning. How can we tame parents? Parents is a big issue. One of the biggest, one of the keys, I gave a masterclass seminar yesterday to some of the school principals who may well be here. Absolutely critical to my evolutionary program are the school principals. I would, I, I would want there to be some kind of compulsory seminar or training or something for school principals to build school principals courage and idealism so that they free us. They don't, they're not sort of worried about the, the results and the management but that they are, they are our leaders, they enable us just as we are enabling the children. So our leaders enable us. And in my country, at least, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of school leaders who have that, willing to take a risk, uh, who have an educational vision, who are able to articulate it clearly, who talk to the parents about it, who create an ethos of learning within the school. I was in a school the other day where everybody in the school is both a learner and a teacher. The mostly women, some men now, but who work in the kitchens to prepare the lunch. Some of them now also work as teachers. There's like soft boundaries. Children become teachers. Children become coaches of teachers. So it's like people can move, can change roles. We're back to that question about not being age-defined, but we're defined by interest and defined by expertise. Okay, so let's move on. So it's like, it's a big job but, you know, someone said to me in that uh, head teachers group yesterday, it's like, where do we start? It seems like such a big thing. Uh, to which the answer is that old question about how do you eat an elephant? What's the answer? One bite at a time. Okay. That's, you know, and it seems like an impossible task, but one bite at a time. So I want you for, for two or three minutes, just get, get a sense, the things that we've talked about, the things that are going around in your head, some of the illustrations that you've heard from me and some of the other speakers. I want you to, to identify in conversation two or three little things, I call them the tiny tweaks, that you're going to do on Monday with your kids that you hadn't planned to before today. Okay? This is where, if you don't do that, this was a waste of time.
an expensive waste of time if you don't go into school on Monday and be a little bit different from the way you normally are. So identify two or three tiny tweaks and commit to your neighbor what you're going to try on Monday. Okay. Okay. So this is, this is my, my strong challenge to you. On Monday, you have tomorrow to recover from today. On Monday begins the evolution. Yay! Right? Because it will be in classrooms like yours, in countries around the world, by teachers doing little things differently, that 21st century education will be made. The path is made by walking. And walking happens step by step. That's how it will change. And then you will change parental opinion. When the children come home more engaged, more enthusiastic, more fired up, with their curiosity and their imagination rehabilitated in schools, then the parents will begin to say, oh, that's interesting, that's nice, and they're getting better results, then that's what will be making the difference. So, those little things, I've just written down, down a, quick, a quick list. These are some of the, like the, you know, the quick wins, things to try. If you haven't got your two or three things, minimum two things, you have to try at least one of them on Monday, and you have another, have another one in your back pocket to try as well. Number one, put up a piece of paper and a poster called the Wonder Wall, which is where your students and your children post their questions. You can make them specific to the topic, particularly if you're secondary school. What would you like to know about this topic? When they come back from a holiday, who got a good question when they were on their holiday? You don't have to answer them all, right? Shed the belief that you have to be omniscient, right? Questions are interesting in their own right. Validate children's curiosity. Stick up a wonder wall. Get the children to make little, if you haven't already done this, these are really, really common things. Some of you will use them already. Get the children to make little cubes out of cardboard. And you, they paint two faces red, two faces orange, and two faces green, like traffic lights. And three, two or three times a lesson, you say to the children, show me the cube, show me the face of your cube. If you see red, red cubes everywhere, that means this is too hard for us, we're not engaging productively with this, we need help. If you see a sea of green cubes, it means this is way too easy. We're not learning anything. Give us something more interesting to do. What you want to see is a sea of orange cubes. This is interesting, this is a bit hard. We're finding this a bit difficult, but we're making progress, like those footballers that I talked about this morning. 
get instant feedback so that you can adjust what's going on in the classroom so that the more kids, more of the time, are in the learning zone. Rescue less. Remember, I gave you a, a possible cue. When a child is stuck, in, in terror, you could say, will you struggle on alone for another couple of minutes and just see if you can do it and then I'll come back. Or you could say, see if you and your buddy can, talk, can work it out together. Right? Lots of, lots of buddy talk in the classroom if you don't do that already. You could use a strategy like try three before me. Some of you will be familiar with that, with that one. Where when you go to a child and they want help, the game is, the rule is, that they have to tell you three things that they tried already to help themselves. You can change the culture in a classroom significantly in two or three weeks if you persist in doing so. Can't you, those of you who've tried it? Right? Just try it. Or there's different ways of describing that. Brain, book, buddy, boss is another one. First, consult your own brain. Don't go miserable. Sit there and think, for goodness sake. Come up with something. Read the book. Look and see if that gives you a good idea. If that doesn't work, talk to your buddy quietly because they might be able to help you out of it. And if all else fails, consult the boss. That's the teacher. Right? But that's the la you become the last resort rather than the first resort. Okay. Uh, See if you can find small ways of giving the children choices about something or other, whether it's choice to drink from their water bottles, choice about where to sit, choice about how to, who, to, who they want to work with. Whatever would be a manageable risk for you. Don't go mad, just build it up. Remember, you're coaching the development of their ability to learn in different kinds of ways. Change the wall displays. Show what work in progress on the wall. Show the drafts. If you haven't watched a, vi a little YouTube video called Austin's Butterfly, watch it. Austin's Butterfly. But you have to promise me that after you've watched it, you'll do something different with the children. Don't just say, oh, that was cute, or that was really interesting. That's worthless unless you change your behavior, right? So you be brave, be bold, try something different, even if it's a tiny little thing, like try three before me, or a little bit less rescuing in the classroom. Change your language a little bit. Try not to be so definitive or didactic in your tone. Use expressions like, I wonder, or I'm thinking, or what do you think would happen if? Or maybe we could soften your language. That invites the children into a world of imagination and creativity and playfulness with ideas and criticalness with ideas. Don't tell them there are seven colors in the rainbow. Say to them, somebody called Isaac Newton on a wet afternoon decided that he was going to divide the rainbow into seven colors. They don't exist in nature. There aren't seven colors in a rainbow. It's a human convention. So why don't you see if you could divide the rainbow up in a different way and think up interesting new names for different colors? Why not? 
right? You're exercising different mental muscles, not just learning what's right, but using the rainbow or whatever it might be as a way of developing your own sense of adventurousness and playfulness and creativity. Get kids to choose their own talk partners. Give them a range of difficulties. The chili challenges. Have you heard of the chili challenges? Yeah, three or four versions of a task, like a translation, for example, that are different degrees of difficulty. And you mark the difficulty by the number of chilies. You know, if you go to a Thai restaurant on the menu, they have different numbers of chilies. That's why they're called the chili challenges. And let the children choose, preferably to work in pairs, on whether they're going to choose a one chili challenge or a two chili challenge or a three chili challenge. And constantly work to shift the atmosphere so they don't always choose the easy one. They'd see that their job is not to get it right quickly. Their job is to learn something interesting by grappling or by struggling with things. You have to start talking to the parents about the worthless page of ticks in their exercise book. If those ticks were not hard won, change their expectations. Okay, have you got something in your basket to try differently on Monday? That wasn't very convincing. <laughs> yes? Yes. Good. Okay. Fantastic. You're the shock troops of the evolution. Go forth and multiply. Thank you very much.